Directional unit on. Atomic accelerator engaged. Well done, Adric. You are now flying the TARDIS. Right. Go on, Adric. It's all perfectly logical. Yeah, right. Good luck. Relax, Adric. Remember what I've taught you. We're approaching a planetary cluster. Adjusting the helmet regulator three degrees. Commentating the local gravity. Excellent. Inputting navigation sequence. We're still within a star system. You should wait until we're in open space. Before it's you. It's all do right, that. I checked. Navigation sequence activated. What did you do? I can't stop it. Look at the scanner. We're heading for a supernova. Just course, Adric, now. The controls won't respond. Maybe if I Too try late. this. I'm gonna hit! Well done, Edric. You killed us. Again! Sorry. Hey everybody, welcome back to Who and Company. My name is Brent. And I'm Drew. And this month we've got something special lined up for you for episode two, an interview with writer Andrew Smith. We're going to touch on some of his work in the classic series, a ton of big finish, and we're going to ask him what classic TV series he's got in mind to discuss with us. But just as a warning, uh, there are a bit of spoilers for uh, the big finish audio story Domain of the Vord and the TV show Survivors. You've been warned. Enjoy the show. So back when we first decided to do this podcast, the first person that asked to be on with us is here today. He was the youngest writer on the classic series of one of my favorite stories, Full Circle. And when he's not running away from people in jogging shorts for charity, he's tirelessly (laughs) writing for Big Finish, cranking out fantastic stories for not only Doctor Who, but also Survivors, Terrahawks, Blake Seven, and Unit. Andrew Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Brett. Can I just correct you on something? What's that? Um, I haven't written for Terrahawks. There's another Andrew Smith that writes for Big Finish. Oh, is um, Andrew T. <laughs> Smith. Uh, gotcha. I, I actually I know nothing about Terrahawks, <laughs> but all the rest of it, yeah, yeah. Wow. I suspect I suspect I suspect he's only had to use the middle initial because uh, because I was I was there first. But it's like when I when I was writing sketches for not the nine o'clock news. I think I was Andrew Smith, and there was an Andy Smith as well. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll leave that in for people that don't know. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of us around. I was once at Crown Court myself and um, another PC Andrew Smith back in the late '80s. Um, nicked a drug dealer in Brixton, and we were the only two officers involved. And it confused the judge and the jury, but we got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> we're friends with a, um, a Matthew 
Smith. But of course, he's not mm. Matt Smith. He's Matthew Dow Smith, and yeah, so he has to yeah. make sure he puts that I, D or Dow in there every single time. Yes, uh, he's of course. I'm aware of him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> we'll have him on the show. I hope very soon. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, it's 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 lovely to be here and to to join you on this podcast. And nice to talk to you again, Brent. It's been a wee while. Yeah, it has. <clears throat> Thanks for coming back. No problem. No problem. And uh, we're gonna try to get out to see you this summer. Yes, that, hopefully, that, excellent. That would be yeah, yeah. I do hope so. If if we're allowed to come back in the country, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I think we're not going to do. I'm not going to be political. All right, me either. Me either. Me either. <laughs> it's yeah. so hard though. And no, the year of Brexit and Trump, and uh, let's just form a little bubble, you know, with Trump and Brexit and everything else on the outside. There we go. There we go. <laughs> well, uh, we wanted to bring you here today um, mm. to talk mostly about Big Finish and uh, mm. especially your new story that just came out last month, uh, The Star Men. Yeah. So, of course, in preparation for this, I'd listened to a, a number of your Big Finish stories. Love them. Uh, but if, I went back and re-listened to quite a <clears throat> few of them. And uh, I just had some, you know, I just I'm always fascinated talking to writers because – the process is fairly new to me, and I'm always curious to pick the minds of, of someone who can come up with a story. Uh, and since Brent has already mentioned Full Circle, mm. I wanted to start off with Mistfall, though it's not chronologically the, the first story. Um, yeah. But I, I was kind of curious as to your thoughts on returning to kind of that Alzarius mindset when you wrote for that story, especially without Adric. Yeah, it was um it was some it's uh Mistfall was a, a main range title uh for Big Finish that came out I think about two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um and it was something I was asked to do. Um Alan Barnes, script editor, got in touch with me and said, uh, you know, we're looking to do another East Bay's trilogy with the fifth doctor, uh and Tegan Nissa and Turlow, um, where they return to East Space and we'd like the first episode to be set back in Alzarius. And uh, two things occurred to me was one <laughs> really good reason for them to go back into East Space and particularly back to Alzheimer's, which which we did after a brilliant idea from Alan Barnes, which is about exploiting the fact that Adric had calculated a route back into East Space in the TV episode Earthshock. Uh, and it made sense that he, in calculating that route, the one geographical set of coordinates he would know in East Space would be Alzheimer's. So that took us back there. I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was a great uh, yeah, device I, for it. It uh, it's uh, it's it's funny. Alan had sent his email out, and he and Matt Fitton and uh, and Johnny Morris and Matt and Johnny were writing the other two episodes. Were sending messages back and forth, and Alan had this idea, uh, this this brilliant little light bulb come on over his head regarding air shock. Um, so that was so that was one of my first thoughts. And the other thing was, it was an opportunity to clarify something, and it's something that I'd addressed when I novelised Full Circle, and it was kind of explaining why the Marsh men were so aggressive uh, towards the people of the Starliner. And uh, I don't know how far to go in explaining that here, but uh, it was kind of explained in the novel that they were protecting the ecology of Alzarius. 
Um, and then in, in Mistfall itself, I take that a little bit further. And um, and we learn that, that yeah, the, the crash of the Starline had other repercussions apart from just what it meant to the uh, the crew of the Starline. So it was good to... It, it, was a, it was a niche that I'd wanted to scratch for quite a while. Although I hadn't ever really thought too seriously about a sequel to Full Circle. I had come up with an idea for a companion chronicle that didn't go anywhere, um, which is about uh, um, a companion chronicle for Romana, where she might, in her battle helping the Tharals to escape slavery after the Doctor's left in East Base, that she might return to Alzarius um, uh, for her own adventure there. Uh, uh, but I hadn't looked at um, the prospect of a, uh, a sequel to Full Circle until I was asked to do one. And also, at the same time, um, I'd written a couple of things for a book that James Goss is putting together called the, about the life and times of the Doctor, um, which, which is a great book. Uh, but he'd asked me to do a couple of entries that are sort of a log, a uh, decider's log, uh, after the Starliner, uh, covering when after the Starliner left Alzarius. Um, and uh, this covered them going to another planet where there was this race called the Haragi, that they fell in with. So I used the Haragi from that as characters in Mistful. So nice it all came together rather, rather nicely, really. Yeah, it was a good story, really enjoyable. Thank you uh, very did much. It, did, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, does writing an introduction to a trilogy affect that writing process? So when they approached you and said, hey, we really want you to write this, you're going to be the first episode in a trilogy, so you can't complete the story to a... Fin- uh, you know, there's a finishing point, but it's not an actual permanent finale how does that affect your writing process uh it's it's to, to be honest it's the best one to write because <laughs> you're, you're not picking up from anyone else um uh and there's a you know there's a, there's an element of setting things up for elsewhere and uh and there was a setup there obviously there's a cliffhanger ending that matt picked up for his story equilibrium and there was this thing of a, a piece of equipment from the tardis that's filched and they have to go after it um that, that I included, but to be honest, the doing the opening episode uh, is probably the easiest uh, uh, of of the three to do. Um, you just have to be mindful of, uh, and there's good, there's always good communication um, with the other writers, uh, so that you're mindful of you know what they need, and 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 to be honest, most of us know each other really well. So you know, I know if in, in that occasion, if Matt or Johnny particularly wanted anything set up they'd have dropped me a line or called me and said you know could you could you drop this in could you put this in because uh, I want to have this happen in my story um, so that happens but uh, yeah doing, doing the opening episode is generally uh, the, least, the least problematic in terms of having to factor other things in uh, as you're writing the script but then that you have a lot I mean, of sense I, but, but I, wrote, I wrote The Brood of Eris um, as, a, as an exception to that rule, I wrote the Brood of Eris, which was the second episode, the second story in a trilogy featuring Colin Six Doctor and Flip uh, before Mistfall. And I had no idea what the story before was, what the story after was, and I didn't need to. It completely stood alone. It wasn't a particular story arc that we were going for there. Um, all I was told with that was just to accentuate the fact that Flip is in- incredibly reckless. 
uh, <laughs> for that to be a uh, so she opens the TARDIS doors in flight, which I got some flack for. But the, hey, guys, she's reckless. Hello, um, but uh, um, yeah, so so it's yeah, so it's not always the case. But, the, but there are other things, you know, in, um, where there's a very strong arc running through it. Uh, I think in the War Doctor, I had to be mindful of that uh, when I was writing the Eternity Cage for the third series War Doctor. Uh, box set Agents of Chaos uh, Ken Bentley was writing the story after mine um, and we had quite a long conversation actually uh, on on the phone about uh, how, what I was going to do, what he was going to do I was going to set him up and then he, <laughs> and then he uh, and I said I've got, I've got this idea for Cliffhanger which I, I said I, I have no idea how the Doctor's going to get out of it but uh, but he said, "He said, you do whatever you want to do. <laughs> you don't have to think about a resolution. Don't think about it. It's going to make it as impossible as you like, and I will think <laughs> of a solution." And I went, "Well, there you go. Then, thank you very much." And, Did you um, uh, attempt to make it more complicated just just on that wager? <laughs> no, no. But um, it was it. Well, you know, it is the cliffhanger that features in the Eternity Cage, and. Um, and actually, I remember at the recording, uh, uh, I think Ken Ken turned up, and I said, "What did you do?" Because I still hadn't. How the hell did you get him out of that? You know, because I had absolutely no idea. And I remember I, I, Matt Fitton was our script editor, and I, I bumped into him at a social event, and I, just in passing, I said, I'm, "I'm looking forward to seeing what Ken's done." And he said, "Oh, he's very clever." And I, okay. But but then I saw okay, I said, What the hell did you do? <laughs> and then he told me. I thought, Oh, good job, good job. But Oh, uh, so you didn't wait to actually listen to the finished product to find out. Uh no I didn't no I didn't. And I mean I, I mean I could have just phoned him up at any time and asked it. But uh sure. it was one of the you know, we're all busy and getting getting on and do the job and move on to another one and whatever. But I what, I thought, what the hell is he what how is he how is he gonna get out of this? <laughs> but if I'm thinking that, that's what uh, the listeners are thinking as well. Yeah, I wanted to bring yeah. up um, that. That leads me right into one of the stories I had uh, listened to this past week mm. was the Eternity Cage, and um, <clears throat> I just got Casualties of War about a week ago, so uh, I had to listen to the first part to get to your part because I didn't want to be behind. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's a, it's a great middle story for the War Doctor or Greybeard, if you will. The, the great, yeah, that's a great thing. Yeah, you got the Doctor, <laughs> and you can't call him the Doctor. Right and uh, which that is oh, and I, I tell you because I, I, I've I've written two episodes of the of the War Doctor, um, and I've I've got one coming up, the Lady of Obsidian, which I can't wait to hear. To be honest <laughs> with you, um, uh, having heard it in the studio, I just can't wait to hear the whole thing come together. Uh, but in both of those, I, I had to do. In, in, with both of those scripts, I had to do something that you, you don't have to do with any other script, and that is I had to do a, a pass looking for any occasion where the, anyone calls the doctor, doctor, because it because ha- it's you you just do it automatically mm-hmm. in any Doctor Who story, you know you'll get and and if I look for it all the time because I think it's overdone, and I try you know if I do it I try to cut it down minimalize it, but you'll get someone speaking and say doctor. Look over there, Doctor. What about the Doctor? And you can't have that with a War Doctor because he doesn't use the name. So you have to do a pass at the end. See if you just by muscle memory you've done it, you know. And and 
um, in dialogue. Uh, the other thing is, you, you know, you have to, you know, there has to be some way around the fact, of, you know, if they're not calling him Doctor, what they're calling him. And so we got Kaelin, this young lad who uh, is, uh, you, you know, just played brilliantly. Um, and it was lovely that he carried on into Ken's story because I was talking to Ken about this character of Kaelin. He said, oh, I'd very much like him to be alive so I, so I can carry on with him. So, yeah, I left Kaelin alive for Ken. Um, um, but we had this, yeah, so in, uh, we've got this character, Kaelin, who calls the Centaurans Moonheads, which took a while, he called, he called them something else, and I can't remember what it was, but we decided not to go with that, and I had to come up with something else, and Matt and I knocked about four or five emails, I should dig them out, because they're all these, and eventually I came up with Moonheads, I think dome heads were suggested at some point, but moon heads eventually. But Kaelin has this thing, and he and he, and he calls the Doctor Greybeard, so he's Greybeard from that point on. And then, it's a very um, clever well, way of dealing with that. Well, you you, you have to find something, and and then um, I'll take in Lady of Obsidian. Uh, he's as uh, a character refers to him as Stowaway, all the way through. Just Stowaway. That's his. That's her name for him. You know. Um, that's cool. But it's yeah. So the War Doctor has particular things you have to keep an eye on that you don't with uh, um, uh, with other scripts. The concept of the Eternity Cage itself, I don't want to give that away, but that was really original and horrific at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, it, it was it was one of the first ideas. Although, oh God, yeah, again, the <laughs> going, going through the name for it, because, um, Again, in relation to timey-wimey things, there are so many names that have been used, and I think I think it was the Infinity Cage initially, yeah. and then it was something else, something else. And we went through, again, about four or five different names for eventually, ah, the Eternity Cage. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, that's what we'll call it. Um, yeah, it was, like, it was like one of those things where you think, why hasn't someone thought of this before? It, it was something, when I thought of it, I thought, actually, this is something that, yeah, this is this is something they, they that they might very well want to use. Yeah. Uh, again, not wanting to spoil it for anyone, I can't go too far with that. But, no. <laughs> um, but then you've got again this tragic figure who's involved in it. Um, and I again one of the, I mean I, having written it and again you've got the, the wonderful performance from Barnaby Edwards as the character who's most closely associated with the eternity, the eternity cage itself. Um, you know, you listen to it, and it, 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 the pathos is incredible. And this is a wonderful thing with Big Finish. The the the, the talent that, that comes into the studio is incredible, um, and totally flatters anything you put on the page. Um, to the extent you know you're listening to something you've written, and you can you still get so in, you know you you know what's happening, you know where it's going. You you know, but you still get these these acts just get you so emotionally involved in it. Um, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, and I've been you know Louise Jameson just made it tears with something that she did in the Lady of Obsidian, and uh, Nick Briggs even more so. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I have I'm sadly I am woefully behind on that series, and it is the one that I've been looking forward to listening to. Uh, probably the longest since I've really gotten into Big Finish, and once they announced it was happening, I got really excited. And of course, uh, no, we've, we've lost we've lost John. We've lost, we've lost yeah. John Hurt, which is uh, incredibly tragic. Um, 
Not least of which, because I mean, I just remember I, I, you know, two days in the studio with him for the two stories, and I just remember just being so full of energy and so incredibly funny. You know, I told him, you know, he could be a stand-up. He was a very, very funny guy, um, uh, and uh, just an incredible talent that we've lost. And it's such a privilege to, you know, to have had him speak some words. I, you know, I put it down on the page, and even today, I mean, I. I drove back from Scotland this morning. I was listening to The Invisible Man, the first of uh, Big Finish's H.G. Wells series. And again, you listen to it and you hear his voice. And um, uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great production, and I recommend it to everyone. It's, it's, it's a wonderful production. It's a great story. And, again, and also you've got the thing of, uh, you know, we're not going to hear him again. Uh, you know, that is... You know, uh, you're listening and you think, well, he's he's not with us anymore, um, and it's it is it's it's you know it's really sad and and tragic and uh, you know terrible loss. For someone whose time on the show was so brief, he certainly made a lasting impression. I mean, I fully accept him as the Doctor and as important part of the mythology. And uh, I can't actually imagine that lineup without him now, even though he, you know, no, he's, only he's really doctor. made one. He, yeah, he, absolutely. He is a doctor. Um, absolutely. And there's there's no question of that. Um, and, I, you know, I, you know I, and I hope he recognized that as well. I mean, I, I, I've been at um, like a, a convention where Paul McGann was talking about his time in the show and, and feeling a little bit as not sure what people thought because his personal time had been so short um, in terms of the TV show. Obviously, he then went on to do a lot with Big Finish, but but he always felt a little... You know, he one of the things of doing the Night of the Doctor piece that showed his regeneration was it, it continued his place in canon because he's also aware because he'd gone off to America or Vancouver uh, to make this thing. And and so I think he had this thing in mind that it it maybe didn't quite fit in with the classic series and whatever, but it was such a nice thing for him to be you know for him to see the acknowledgement that no absolutely you're canon you're part of it. Uh, fandom has never thought anything else. Um, uh, and again, I think I think with John and John Hurt with with the War Doctor, absolutely you don't. Uh, he he is absolutely established as someone. Every fan's mind features in that uh, that panoply of of faces that that we look at when we see all the doctors together. <clears throat> Would you ever consider writing a non-audio War Doctor story? Uh, I have done. <laughs> uh, I've done this. There's a Seasons of War War Doctor um, anthology series oh, for, for charity. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, Declan's. It's the yeah the the can't remember it's the Celephas gift that was it, um, which I, yeah yeah it's Declan May's uh, um, anthology uh, for Coldwell Children and um, yeah. that that uh, so again that's a short story, um, not as short <laughs> not as short <laughs> as I necessarily intended but I went with it and uh, it expanded and uh, I was really pleased with it in the end it was a, it was an idea. For a particular type of, I almost hesitate to use the word invasion, but a takeover, a particular type of takeover, 
idea that I've had in mind for a long, long time. And it was lovely to get to do that. And I th I thought that'd be the only time I'd write The War Doctor. Um, until I got that email from Big Finish, which yeah. was both amazing and delightful and scary and daunting. And, um, and I've got to say, I have never been so pleased to hear something I, I'm, I'm involved with be announced as I was for the War Doctor because I was so nervous about it. Uh, just, just having that secret because um, when, I, when I got the email saying, you know, first of all, it's, it's, it's I think for David Ritson, first of all, are, are you doing, are, have you got some free time? Are you free to work on something shortly? And not saying what it was. Yeah, yeah, go on, what is it? And, um, and then it was, yeah. Yeah, and it started. I think the header was top secret, top secret, and then the text of it was "Don't even tell your cat." But <laughs> we're doing the War Doctor, and uh, at this time, uh, the Tenth Doctor series had just been announced, and of course that had been leaked previously, even before the recordings had been done. Um, uh, the David Tennant and Catherine Tate were recording for Big Finish, but it was leaked before. Uh, it, I, th I think even before it's finalised, you know, um, but certainly before it was recorded. <clears throat> and so, so suddenly I was involved with the War Doctor uh, and writing these two scripts, uh, and I felt really nervous about it. Oh, God, uh, you know, there are very few people know about this. This is so big; it's got to leak at some point. If it's not, if it doesn't go out shortly, um, and having been involved in a job <laughs> for years where you know you dealt with secret things. And actually, you know, and at times, you know, dealing with the repercussions of when secrets get out, and this isn't, you know, it's not the same thing, but, you know, fingers get pointed when secrets get released. And uh, I was so relieved when actually, earlier than I expected, it was announced that we were doing The War Doctor. And as soon as it was out, I, I, I gave a big sigh of relief. <laughs> this, uh, oh, good, everybody knows about it. Great, great. They didn't know I was writing for it. It's like, but, oh, great, it's out there, it's out there, brilliant great yeah but it was one it was it was wonderful but that for that first suit it was it was done incredibly quickly uh it's amazing i mean this is such a testament to the professionalism the efficiency the and and the talent of the people at big finish um we had a um we had a Big, big Finish had done these Big Finish Day conventions in Slough, and we did one in September of... Now, I've just got to think of the, the dates. So when, when did War Doctor 1 come out? Uh, was that... That was December 2015? December 2015. That's right, that's yeah. right, yeah. So, September 2015. That's right, um, yeah. This, September 2015, we had Big Finish Day in Slough, and then uh, afterwards, we're in my car, and I'm in the car. I, I was driving Nick Briggs and David Richardson home afterwards, and um, we were, we were talking about the War Doctor, and and nothing had been recorded at that point, um, uh, and and we, so we're having a chat about the, the character, the recordings, and everything else, how it was set up, um, and. Then in January, again, we had a big finish day. <laughs> and so we're talking, you know, four months later. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was out there. And, and again, after the event, I'm, I was driving 
Nick and David Holman were talking about it. And I said, do you remember? Do you, that's weird. You know, back in September, we were doing this journey and we were talking about War Doctor and nothing had been recorded just by the start. And in that space of time, all of it's been recorded for four box sets has been recorded and the first box set is out there. That is incredible. Wow. <laughs> and it was just to think about that, you know, in that space of time. And then there was a general consensus of we are never doing that again. <laughs> I think it was just, um, you know, it, 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 it was hugely impressive, but it, it uh, you know, it, it really stretched things. But an, an incredible testament to, um, to the abilities of Big Finish, that is. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, mm. how long does it take you on, on average to write a, a Big Finish story? Oof. So, Maybe something aside as, as the the war doctor. Uh, um, I mean, do they give you a deadline and say, okay, it needs to be done yeah. by this time? Uh, yeah, for the first draft, um, yeah, you'll get a date. Uh, uh, at mo- most times, I'm working on a number of things that overlap, uh, so you're all you know you're always juggling, uh, whatever. And I I genu- I, I generally allow. And it's funny, this is something that goes back to when I did the day job as well. And I, I generally, for a bit of comfort, allow like a, a week for an episode, then in a week on top to go over it all. And that, that's been uh, shortened a bit now that I'm, I'm doing this full time. But um, in terms of the actual, of actually writing it, it, it I, I, I find now that I, I've got, I've got in a habit of where I'll, I'll write something and I'll look at it. And I think it's okay, and I'm like, but I've got a better idea, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a habit I'm trying to get out of. Um, I've just done something where I was three quarters of the way through, and then I had an idea which was a very good idea, uh, says to myself, but it did involve changing a very significant change to the first half of the script, and um, and it involved being really two weeks over the deadline just, just actually uh, playing around with that first bit it, 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 to be honest I was much I was really happy with the script when I added it in um, but uh, I need to stop just trying to think oh I've got another idea I've got another idea I, I've, I've kind of got into that habit of, of doing that um, uh, but it so it, it does vary it does vary Um uh, there've been some things. I mean, I, I mentioned on the on the Brood of Eris, um, uh, the the Six Doctor story with Flip that I did. That was very much uh, up against the clock and a very tight deadline. And I wrote the third episode of that in a day. Um, oh wow! I did six thousand words. Having said that, I I I do scene break. I do my own scene breakdowns for every script. Uh, it's something I used to do back in the day and I do it now uh, and just scene by scene by scene breaks it down and it saves time uh, and I find that with a, with a recent thing as well it really saves time just uh, scene by scene by scene very quick pre see what's happening in each scene um, uh, and that you alter that as you go along and it, and it, it really saves time because then you're not writing two or three scenes and then saying actually I think actually what we need to do is change that da 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 um, so when I say I did a, uh, a script in one day, I did, but I had a full scene breakdown that I'd already prepared before that. So when I did that 
and it was 6,000 words I had to get down to five, but but I did it in a day. What I learned from that is I'm never, ever, ever going to mention that on, on the commentary's interview <laughs> uh, <laughs> again because people picked up and they said, oh, it's obviously rushed. Went, no, no, I'd prepared it and I was very happy with it. And I was, But then people like, oh, he just, you know, he just wrote, no, I didn't. You know, and, and Brudaveris is one of those, I think it's one of the least regarded of what I've written, but I, it's one of the ones I'm absolutely happiest with. And it's... It, it's um, uh, I I I absolutely love it a bits, uh, and and it comes down to you know how you feel when you listen to something. But Brudaveris, I remember, I wanted to do a particular thing, and a particular thing I wanted to do was have, and it and it was about parenthood. It's a story about parenthood, um, and it and it did what I wanted it to do. And what I also, and the big fear I had when I started it, I wanted to have a, an enemy that was as atrocious and vile and horrible, doing terrible, awful things at the start that you have some sympathy with at, at the end. And there were particular things I put in place, um, including atrocities that actually aren't, you know, that kind of look like terrible things to do that actually are not quite what they seem to be by the time you get to the end of the story. Um, but I just remember, you know, I listened to that uh, all the way through and... Um, uh, for the first time, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I like what I wanted to do with that is there, and the cast were great, and we have little impish characters in that called the Dracchi, and I think my time in the studio listening to all the actors in <laughs> for about fifteen minutes at a time, as, it, as I seem to recall, uh, was just such such great fun. Um, um, uh, but yeah, I will never again mention <laughs> when I'm interviewed by David Richardson or anybody for the extras <laughs> that oh yeah I, I yeah I wrote, I wrote six thousand words I did an episode in a day I will never say that again <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll probably I'll probably never do it again to be honest with you but it was set up it was prepared and everything the groundwork had been done for it yeah um I wanted to bring up another one uh that I listened to this mm. week I, f- I heard it a few years ago when it came out, but I listened to it again this week because um, I knew we were going to talk to you. Was mm. the first on Tarns, and yeah, mm. that is one of my favorites. And it's actually for those that don't know, it's a lost story that was going to mm. be the Sixth Doctor and Perry back in the eighties. I had no idea how close this was to actually being made. Yeah, um, it's yeah. Eric Eric Sayward invited me. Uh, I mean, he he he'd, uh, he'd been sent a script of um, a radio play that I'd written. For BBC Radio, um, I was impressed by it, and then asked me in, or asked me down. I mean, I was living in Scotland at the time. He asked me down, went for lunch, and uh, asked me to come up with an idea for a Santarans story. So I came up with the first Santarans storylined it, uh, and then I I wrote the scene breakdown for it, which was part of the process. Then the actual official scene breakdown, uh, and then it didn't go any further, but. Um, and I, I didn't really get any feedback at the time, but uh, but it turned out Robert Holmes was writing the two doctors. Uh, so again, you know you can't argue with that. You get the uh, you know Andrew Smith or Robert Holmes. Uh, you're going to go with Robert Holmes, every, you know, seven days a week. Um, I don't often get emotional listening to Big Finish, but this one kind of got me at the end. It's just really well written, and I love how it's an origin story, but it's not told like one. In fact, it's 
the origin is the big <clears throat> reveal deep into part three. Yeah, it's uh, you, you know so when I came back to it, um, there, there were some things that you know I I still had the storyline and the scene breakdown, but I hadn't looked at it for the best part of thirty years. And when I was looking and uh, you know thinking about it, I thought, why is it called the First Centaurians? I can't think. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even remember that. You know, um, uh, what I remembered, there were two things I remember. One was a cockfight in episode one. Why I remember that, I don't know. I think probably because I researched it, because I'm thinking, did they have cockfights back in uh, 1872? I remember that it featured, and this uh, and this does not feature in, in uh, the Big Finish production, it featured the Mary Celeste. Uh, and I remember the scene breakdown, uh, sorry, I remember the cliffhanger of episode one. And I remember almost nothing else about it. And I, and I, I can't, why, why is it called the first Centaurians? And then I dug out the scene, the, the storyline, and read that, and obviously read the scene breakdown as well. But read the storyline, I thought, ah, yeah, that's why. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it is, it is an origin story told in a very different way. Um, yeah. And we have a, you know, it's, it's funny. We have a character who's basically a Davros, but he's a nice guy. Um. Uh, and yeah, it was it was lo- it was it was lovely to do, and I you know, and and it did I did vary it from the um, the storyline, the scene breakdown, particularly taking out the Mary Celeste um, element, uh, largely because you know at the time that no no one knew, no one knew yet. Doctor Who had already done it. You know, I don't know if Ian Levine would have looked at it at some point. Ian Levine was a name I didn't hear at any point, and he certainly hadn't looked at the storyline or whatever. But um, uh, you know, we none of us were aware that you know the Mary Celeste had already been done, uh, and it is the Mary Celeste, not the Mary Celeste. Uh, the Mary Celeste had been done in the chase. In the chase, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I remember you know researching it. I've got you know this is. <laughs> 1983 or 82 or 3 or something you know I researched it by going to the, my local library and getting a book on Mary Celeste and um, so I remember feeling a bit awkward about it because I you know there were real people real characters to me um, but it was quite nice to come back to it and take that out and basically the way to cover it is basically in the First and Tyrant's audio the scenes that take place in the Orbiter are Basically, that's the Mary Celeste scenes from the storyline, is uh, the best way of covering that. Um, but yeah, I was uh, yeah I was extremely pleased with it. Uh, in terms of writing it, I mean, I I remember um, getting quite a lot of notes on the first draft of the script. You know, I'd, I'd been over descriptive in the dialogue and all that sort of thing. Um, but then then turned that around with the next one and. Uh, so we did. There weren't too many drafts of the script, actually, as I as I recall. And then we got in the studio, and the cast were amazing. And uh, uh, funny enough, Liz, Lizzie Roper has has a line in the final episode. Actually, it's not spoilery, but she says we we were parents to. Uh, and I remember getting really choked up by that in the studio. And then Lizzie Roper plays a character called Rosetta Laxter in uh, The Lady of Obsidian, 
in the upcoming War Dogs, and uh, she, she did it again <laughs> with her with her final line. She uh, she choked me up. Yeah, she was um, great. She is amazing. Lizzie's amazing. She's really really good. Um, uh, yeah, and I was I was so pleased with that. And you got look look at what Jamie Robertson did with the the sound design on the first Centaurans as well. Again, you're in the studio and you listen to the recording, but then you know you get the final product. I just think, oh, oh, the finished, the big finished product, and um, it just sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah. So again, you get a bask in the reflecting, you know, the, the 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 just the effort, the flattery of the talent that goes in from all across Big Finish in turning a script into something that is just a great listening experience, just from the input that everybody makes, some of the actors, the producers, the notes that you get on the script in the first place, and then the sound design and music and everything else, which turns them into such a, uh, a good listening experience. And totally flatters, again, I've said it earlier, but flatters what you put on the page. I have a bunch of questions about Dermain of the Vord, but since we're talking about Santarans, uh, I have to ask, how do we justify the Santarans as new monsters uh, for the, the Santaran ordeal? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> Okay, the justification for them being a classic Doctor's new monster is that they are the new type of Centaurans. So you've got sure. Centaur, Hat, and all that. And it helps tr- enormously that we've got Chris Ryan there. Uh, but also contributing to this is the fact that it wasn't initially called uh, Classic Doctor's New Monsters. It was initially called Monster Tales, featuring monsters from the new series. That was the, init- the initial title for it. Um ah. And as I understand it, that, that you know, that's a point at which you know the Centaurans were selected as being representative. Um, but I think uh, you know, once that new monsters thing came along, it then fell on me to uh, kind of accentuate the fact that uh, yeah, this is new series. This is new series Centaur. These are new series Centaurans. Uh, that's exactly yeah. what we assumed. It's exactly what we assumed, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like I, I, I got no qualms with it. Other than that, I just kind of wanted to hear. No, you... but I, oh, and I tell you, I, I, it, it strikes me again. It rings a bell with one of the things of the the joy, the the you know, the extra little pleasures of writing for Big Finish. Um, uh, one one thing is seeing the covers that they do, <laughs> which is always a delight. I mean, the Starman cover again, ah. But but all of them. Um, but the other thing is when you um, occasionally I will see the cast list before I get there. That's unusual. Um, usually, if I get an email that says, "Oh, oh, by the way, here's the cast list," um, and I realize the first time that happened was a misfall actually, and I looked down the cast list and there's Gemma bleeding Redgrave. <laughs> Hello, Blender Decider. <laughs> Uh, so I tend to think if I if I get the cast list, it's generally have a look at who we've got for you, and um, uh, but you know but the the, the casts are fabulous. So uh, for um, the Centauran ordeal and classic Doctor's new monsters, we've got Chris Ryan coming back playing a Centauran general. Who turns out, and this is a cliche, but it does turn out to be just the nicest bloke ever. You know, <laughs> um, just I just. I can't picture him without seeing this just big wide wide grin in his face, uh, and just being such um, you know fab fabulous uh, 
company with um, at that time him and Sean Sean Connolly playing uh, St Aaron's in the studio that day before we had before we had uh, Dan. Um, uh, and again with St Aaron's, it's great. You know, I've uh, I've got to write for St Aaron's a few times, um, and I've just delivered another little St Aaron's story that's going to turn up somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. Through an oversight, a couple of other big finished writers have recently uh, been allowed to write for St. Tyrants. I'm not quite sure how that's been allowed to happen, but it has. Uh, and that's Mark Wright and Kevin Scott and Simon Guerrier, and it helps. Ooh. They are tremendous writers who've done a fantastic job. Um, yeah. If I haven't heard uh, Mark and Kevin's story yet, but I mean, I was, I was walking around central London listening to the St. the first doctor. Early adventure story that Simon's written for um, uh, for that range, and it's fabulous. It's really, really good. I strongly, strongly recommend it. That's brilliant. I I have to I have to pick your mind about Domain of the Void. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I I really <clears throat> respect about your writing is your ability for word world building. Um, it, every story that you put together. I feel like you are considering not just the location that it's taking place, but the a greater scope in the world, and and I appreciate that. I, I especially, you know, full circle and and, uh, mm. but you create such a fascinating expansion on the Vord because I think you're the only the second person to write about that. Yeah, Nick. Well, Nick. Nick. Uh, Nick Briggs has gone on to write a, which I haven't listened to just yet. Um, he's, he went on to write a Vord episode for Doom Coalition episode uh, two point one. Mm-hmm. But that one, yeah, that was the first Vord uh, story for Big Finish, um, and it's uh, the first of the early adventure stories. And it's it's something. I mean, obviously, you you know, you research everything and. The first thing I'd also sit down and watch the Keys of Marinus with a notebook, and uh, there's there's some interesting little contradictions in there because I mean, from not just the TV program but from the script and the notes and the production notes that are on the DVD, it's clear that the suits that the Vood wear in Keys of Marinus are to get them across the acid sea. They are acid suits. Um, but also, I'm not going to do a story where that that holds true because you've got you've got an outer. They they turn up with them later, so um, so you want a reason for them to be wearing the suit. Um, and I just had to think about it, and I came up with an idea that I thought, hmm, yeah, I like that. I like that, and I like. Um, again, I'm just trying. You know how much to say or not to say how spoilery it would be, but the thing of the third kind of trying to get people to genuinely buy into their creed. Yes, um, absolutely. It's not about just knocking people over the head and press-ganging them and saying them so that you're in our gang, but you, you actually have to believe. To be a verd, you actually have to believe, and I probably have been quite spot saying that, but um, uh, it, it, I, yeah, I find that particularly... Um, compelling idea I'll tell you also something that really helped me with Domain of the Vord because I think there's a thing in there that, that, that kind of con, confounds expectations 
the note I had, one of the notes I had from David Richardson at the start, is he said, um, we want it to look like the Doctor and Barbara have been killed at the end of episode one. And at the end of episode two, we'd like Ian and Susan to be leaving in the TARDIS and then at the beginning of episode three, it looks like they have to come back. Uh, and so they have to stop taking off because of the way the TARDIS behaves at the time. Now, I had the TARDIS taken away uh, out of their reach in episode one, which is quite normal in a story. But what you'd normally get... God, this would be very spoilery now, actually. But um, uh, what you'd normally get in a story would be uh, they'd be reunited with the TARDIS at the end. But it actually drove the narrative quite nicely. It, 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 it pushed me down... A line where I had to get them back with the TARDIS, kind of in episode two, quite unexpectedly, really in, in terms of, um, and that that's a different, you know, that that's not something I think I would have done otherwise, but it opened up other possibilities, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I I think episode two, I think is a nice little character because we've got some travel, we've got some nice little character scenes and. We've got some nice scenes between Susan and the Verd in episode two. And then we it becomes another thing from episode three onwards. Episode four was a pig to storyline. <laughs> Absolute pig. And I just kept coming up with ideas and like, that's not good enough, that's not good enough, that's not good enough. And then I had the idea for this device that's by the ocean that the Verd are using, which uh, eventually gave me gave me the key to, to finishing it off the way I wanted to. Um I th- uh, I, I, actually, I tell you what, Domain of the Verd and First and Tyrants both feature something that I try to build into my four-part stories as well, which is the big reveal comes in episode three, um, because there's a there's, there's a common misconception that episode three is a bit of a filler, and I think episode three is a perfect place to put your big reveal to say. This is what it's about. There's a big twist here, um, uh, and to really set up the finale by seeing in episode three, boom! There you go. You, you didn't see that coming, did you? Um, which I worried about in First and Tarans, because in the First and Tarans, before you get to episode three, you're kind of thinking, First First and Tarans, what, what? Why is it called that? <laughs> you know, uh, and I did worry about that before it came out. You know, before I saw the reaction to it, which is incredibly positive, um, but uh, you know, I, I did worry. Maybe, you know, but I think, oh well, we actually we don't know why it's called the First Centaurans until we get to episode three. Um, but then I th- I think that 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 payoff uh, kind of justifies it, and probably people aren't thinking. You know, but again, with with the audio stories, you're not going week from week to week to week. Um, listening to them so uh you, you kind of get more scope to get away with it really uh one thing that i thought was really cool about this uh <clears throat> was your way of um something you don't really think about when you're watching doctor who when, when you're watching a doctor who story you usually think okay well this entire story took place in a day or two <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's there's actually a significant passage of time in here like weeks where they're stuck on the ship and and uh, that yeah, made it more which, realistic. Yeah, yeah, and it just let the story breathe, you know. Yeah. And I, um, some of my favourite stuff is there. I think there's some interactions between 
you know, there's, there's a particular Vuard character. Their interaction, interaction between him and Susan and between him and Ian that I, I, I just love to bits. And I, you know, um, and a lovely little scene between Ian and um, what I suppose we consider as his love interest when he's, you know, he's he's the the watchman on the ship and they have, you know, a, a nice little scene. Uh, I t actually, I tell you what, you, you talk about world building and part part of the reason that happens is um, I like to write biographies, kind of one page biographies of my major characters. Um, and it's just for me to get to know them, really. And often they'll, they'll I mean, sometimes there'll be a fair chunk of that will turn up, but not often. And sometimes hardly anything at all. Um, and in fact, Lizzie Roper's character in The Lady of Obsidian, there's there's just a couple of lines, really, that, that refer to that, which are she talks, the doctor says something about her father, and she reacts to that. And I don't, that line would not be in there at all um, if I hadn't written that biography. But it just lets me understand her or any of my other major characters. Um, uh, and again, you know, again, talking because you're because I'm writing out their, their uh, you know, their background, their life story, that will necessarily kind of in, in, include layers of their social surroundings as well. Um, but, I, but I do like, I, I, you know, I, I do like to try and kind of picture, a, you know, a community and a world uh, or whatever and just try and just throw those little nuggets in there that aren't necessary to progressing the plot or whatever, but just, again, I had those little touches of verisimilitude, really. Well, it definitely shows in the quality of your work and, and, and as a listener, I, I definitely appreciate it. Again, it's not something you can do too consciously. I, I think you just you, you just try to understand the uh, the world and the surroundings that your your characters are in, and catch yourself. Um, I think as well whenever you uh, whenever you think you might be going down a cliched route, and definitely I think that with characters, um, I, I you know finding a justification for someone to do terrible things. Um, it's something you know. I always try to do that, and I think again from my background of policing, there are very few evil people. I mean, I, I, you know, I come across genuinely evil people, but most people who do bad things do them for reasons that they think are the right reasons. Um, uh, and there have been times more right again where I've you know I've found parallels and kind of you know uh, you know what, what I you know my my policing career, but. Um, uh, that I retired from a couple of years ago. Well, yeah, I was just impressed that you, you went from taking a race from tripping over carpets to being very scary. And um, <laughs> I, I loved, I mean, they're pretty much <laughs> fleshed out here, yeah. With a word. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I remember uh, Carol, Callan Ford. <laughs> oh, my God, this is really horrific, isn't it? Uh, I said, I think, yeah, which, and, um, again, I, this is one thing I won't be too spoilery, but. But I do remember a horror film that I saw. I just saw a little glimpse of it. I don't know how young I was. I, I, I think I was under 10. Uh, God, no one if I have to say kind of what it was. But but just a thing of someone, you know, uh, 
uh, th their face being damaged by something being done, and um, which is reflected in a in a in a, in a bit of the word script. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it is quite it's quite strong stuff. What, what's been nice, it can't, I know I've heard um, interviews with Carol afterwards where you know she's she's mentioned it as one of her favourites, and um, that and that's been lovely, lovely to hear. Uh, and it remains one of my my personal favourites. I was going to ask you, did you write that her part in mind uh, um, to make sure that she did something other than scream? I mean, like. Uh, she Susan has an important part to play in this, which is not something she always had in the television series. Um, that's right. I mean, I think uh, I mean, D Domain of the Verd was about. I mean, I've done about twenty five big finish scripts now. And Domain of the Verd is about the third one that I did. Uh, so I'm, I'm not too sure, but but i'm sure in writing it you know you're kind of aware you know you're writing for william russell and caroline ford here um and yes the characters of the doctor and and barbara are in there as well uh and the other characters but uh you're aware not only that you know the actors are there but you want you want to you want to give those actors some good things to do um and and also in a position where like i say you know the doctor and barbara are out of it for a little while um which opens up some nice possibilities for them being reintroduced uh but uh it kind of drives you towards you know thinking about uh ian and susan's situation um uh at the same time as being careful you know you think you really you, Again, you want to give the actors some some decent pithy things to do with their own characters, even though they are partly narrating the rest of it. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, it, it probably was partly conscious, thinking yes, I want to give Susan some pithy stuff to do here. But again, we've got you know a period of time where S Susan and Ian are on their own. Uh, so you get those characterful moments again where the story can breathe a bit, which particularly happens, I think, in episode two. The last big finish I wanted to talk about today mm. um, was uh, the new one that you just did. It just came out last month mm. called The Star Men, which was the start of a new trilogy with yeah. the Fifth Doctor and Tegan and Nyssa and Adric. And I'm so glad that Matthew Waterhouse decided to come back and play so Adric. So yeah. yeah, he's always been one of my favorites. So, what was it like writing for him again? Yeah, so it was good. I mean, I I actually I'd written a story with Adric in it as a character in my first big finish script, which was the Invasion of Espace uh, Companion Chronicle back in uh, two thousand ten, I think it was. Um, yeah, it was good. It was good. I mean, I, I'd again, I got an email from Alan Barnes asking me to come on board, and um, and what he particularly he wanted something that would make use of Adric's mathematic mathematical ability, um, and I'd all the the i the basic idea of this of using uh, the background of an Earth expedition to the Large Magellanic Cloud, and a and a ship that had been sent there mysteriously appearing and coming back, and barreling back towards where it's been sent from was an idea I'd come up with for another range. It was one of about five or six ideas, and we've gone with something else. Um, uh, 
I'd, I'd I'd incorporated this in, in, into this idea, and in an <laughs> and in a way with Adric, I sold out, um, uh, because I've always said this this thing of his mathematical ability, he's that badge for, uh, for mathematical excellence that he's got. It's a, and that's something I created. It wasn't in the the um, uh, the one page character profile that had been written by Chris Bidbid and, and John Nathan Turner. Um, uh, I created that, and that was just simply to indicate that he was he's basically good at sums. He lived mm-hmm. in a small community of a few hundred up to a thousand people, um, and in that size community, um, he. You know he was he was good at maths and arithmetic, basically, uh, and the idea behind that was it paralleled the fact that the Outlers had their badge, which was the Marshery Belt. It was a direct correlation, and it wasn't meant to symbolise he was a mathematical genius. But that's how it went uh, later, and uh, so I came to this, and actually I, a bit cheekily, I had something in mind that I didn't put in the storyline. And there's 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 a point in the Starman where Adric has a mental challenge he has to face. He's sort of mentally battling with the Starman of the title. And I had in mind, but again, I didn't put it in the storyline. Um, I was just going to shove it into the first draft script and give it a run. Uh, was that in the course of this bat, this mental struggle, his his mental capacity would be increased. And he would turn into, you know, someone. You know, he went from someone who's good at sums to being mathematically a genius, or whatever. You know, his his abilities have been expanded. And I actually wrote it, and then it just didn't really work in the context of the piece. It didn't really work, um, and it didn't it didn't really serve a purpose except to have someone listening to it and say, "Oh, Andrew Smith is just trying to make a point here." Um, so I, I sold it and I, I just went with it. Oh, right, okay. He's uh, otherwise I don't. Well, no, he, you know, he, he does. He does actually make some very complicated uh, calculations quite quick, uh, quite quickly, doesn't he? In episode one, but uh, so yeah, I, I went with it as the, um, the, the what is now kind of the, the collected wisdom on uh, on Adric. Um, but it was lovely to write from again. Lovely to be in the studio again. Uh, uh, and hearing Adri- uh, Matthew doing Adric and Adric coming to life again and uh, again speaking my words. Um, and it's a story I'm very fond of. I'm very, very fond of that one. Um, and I, th- you know, I like the fact that people learn some things from it because the Large Magellanic Cloud, the Tarantula Nebula, um, and the star clusters that are mentioned in it, they're not random numbers, they're not random things, they actually exist. Uh, and the large Magellanic cloud, the small Magellanic cloud, they are fascinating um, astronomical phenomena. Um, That's one through line I've, I've found with all of your stories is that you would do a lot of research and actually learn some things when <laughs> listening to some. Oh, I, 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 it's it's one of the side benefits of the job, you know. And I, uh, when I was writing Unit Extinction, the first unit box set, and I was doing all this research on Mongolia. And I know still I want to go to Mongolia and I want to go in the Gobi Desert and I want to go into one of those Russian mini buses and I want and I wanted that they, that's where all the two, all the two, you drive around in a Russian clapped out mini bus basically um, going across the Gobi Desert which is a very cold desert with very little sand it's all weed and rock and whatever 
and stay in a nomad's gear. Um, I mean, I, I, you learn so much. And uh, um, but the, the research is important. And there's not, I mean, there's, there's something I've written recently. Uh, it's an historical set in a foreign country, and I was researching almost every single page of that script. <laughs> you think, you know, you think, what was on the floor? What were the walls made of? How how would what, what would the doors be like? All these you have to think of these things because the sound designer is going to have to do them. What fabrics were they wearing? You know, and what and and the worth it. You know, floor covering. I spent uh, four hours one evening just totally looking into what floor coverings. Um, it was probably a little too long, but it, I got I got quite fascinated by it. <laughs> and uh, and you do you know and again I, when I was researching Geneva for the second unit box set and got completely fascinated by that um, uh, you know what's in Geneva and CERN and um, uh, the landmine the, the giant chair with the missing leg that's a landmine memorial in, in Geneva All these, you, you know you learn so much it's a side definitely a side benefit of writing but I'm also um you know, I I I don't want someone to come back and say, "Oh, that's not right," or whatever. But but also, you know, you're being paid to 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 do these things, and and you know, you you it's it's your job to make them as accurate as they can be. And sometimes you do get, you know, it can take an awful long time. When I when I wrote um, Vengeance of the Stones, the Destiny of the Doctor series. Um, that that starts with some RAF pilots flying out of RAF Lossiemouth, which had been a Royal Naval Air Station. So I was researching that. When did that change from a Royal Naval Air Station to an RAF station up in the north of Scotland? And then it was, what sort of aircraft were flying out of there? And this has to be a training aircraft, so it has to have two seats. And I, 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 I spent a couple, which is way too long, actually, researching that what aircraft would have been flying out of RAF Lossiemouth in the 70s Unit dating notwithstanding, because I I did, right. put, I did I did put a date in there initially, and oh my god, that went out. That was the first thing to get. The, <laughs> this, the, uh, the second draft. I was so naive back then, but um, uh, but yeah, you want to get it right. You know, I've, I've done something recently. It's in a na- in a naval ship in the seventies, and um, so I was researching like depth charges. How are they fired? What are the instructions that are given in the operations room when they fire? You know what what you know. Who actually fires them? And are they fired from one day? Are they fired from the, they're fired from the ops room by the SC, the sonar controller, and uh, the particular model of... And they're called mortars. They're, they're, called mor- they're depth charges, but they're called mortars when they're fired. You know? And I'll, Again, I'm, I'm digressing, but it's just so educational. <laughs> really educational being a writer. Okay, as we all know, you've you wrote Full Circle for season eighteen and the youngest mm. writer to do so. But yeah. you also wrote the novelization. And I read that John Nathan Turner asked you to get rid of the epilogue at the end of the book and I hadn't heard about this. Can you tell us what it was supposed to be? It was awful. It was um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, a, it was a good call. As I recall, I don't remember too it's funny enough, I have my copy of the novelization, but it doesn't have the epilogue with it. And I've got um you know, I typed out pages. I've got them all, but it doesn't have the epilogue. But the epilogue, as I remember it, and it was an awful idea. It was 
that the Starliner, I think, roughly, basically the Starliner finishes up back in Alzarius. That's what, that's what it was. So it was a kind of full circle, full circle. Oh, okay. um, And quite how that, I don't know, instruments going wrong or whatever, I don't know. Are they, I, I, I don't know. I can't think of the justification for it. But that was it, uh, and it went. There was also a length thing. I mean, the um, I only found out when I read David Howe's notes on the audiobook, when the audiobook reading by Matthew came out about three years ago, and I was reading David Howe's notes, and he said actually it was a longer manuscript than they used to, and in fact they reduced the size of the font so that it would still be a 120-page novelisation, which I was quietly pleased about, to be honest with you. But that's that's also me as well. I overwrite everything, uh, It's um, and it's it's the, the bane... <laughs> of my writing really you know because um, again a big finished script it's it's typically 10,000 words for an hour of audio um, and you have to get it down to that and you know when uh, you know when it's meant to be you know so for a four part main range that's meant to be 20,000 when you're looking at 27,000 uh, as I as I did on something not so long ago at the end of a first draft you think oh god because uh, you've got to cut that back because you can't you cannot submit that or anything like it but hopefully what you finish up with is something that's um, uh, that's you know fairly lean um, and, and I think I think it's been to the benefit of the things I've done actually because um, uh, you you know what you you know you get rid of the excess uh, but um uh, but yeah, with the novelization, uh, that was it. Yeah, the epilogue was the starline that finished up back in Algiers. Uh, even as I say it, I'm, I'm embarrassed to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Drew, you wanted to, you had something to say about the novelization too, right? Ah, oh, I just, I haven't read it. Uh, so I just remember when researching it, um, uh, they had mentioned that, uh, is it, does does someone say damn? I I, I feel like uh, are you the first person to to write a quote unquote uh, curse word in Doctor Who? You know what I um I meant to look into that because I read that somewhere. I can't and it's been in the last couple of years and I read and some you know it's probably the same source you found it. Someone said I think it's Romana says damn. That's that's what I read. Yeah, which I don't really regard as a curse word. You know, I know the makers. No, I, and I don't the either. But all it differently. But um, um, and I, I meant to look. I think oh, I myself go and look at that. I think I, I, um, I hadn't looked at it for year, for I don't know, twenty twenty five years, and then my older daughter Amy, when she was about seven, asked me to read it to her at night. You know, as our bedtime reading. Um, and I was reading it, sir, and I was quietly thinking, you know, I think twenty years after the event, you you, you are entitled to say, that's not bad, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but that's you know, so I came came back to that. Um, that's when I came back to it. So I can't specifically remember where that is, but it kind of ring, it kind of rings a bell. Uh, although I'm, I'm a little surprised, I don't. Th- you know, I I do know I I wasn't a I wasn't a great fan of putting too much extra dialogue in there that wasn't on the screen because I 
what I wanted from a target novel, my target novels, was something that reflected what was on the screen. And I did include extra scenes. I included Outlaws being dragged under the swamp during Mistfall, and I included a scene of Nefrid uh, accessing the system files and things like that. But where I had scenes that were on, on screen, I actually had my video recordings alongside me as I wrote them. So I included little business that the actors did. For instance, Tom and Lala's uh, In Romana's Room, picking up the book and leafing through it. That's in the novel because that was on on screen. Uh, and I, I, I do remember being kind of reluctant to add to the dialogue, but I suppose I, I might have done. But if Dam is in there, I suppose, yeah, I might be the first one to have done it. So we've come to the part of our show where we ask the guests if there's a particular British TV show, old or new, that they like to discuss. Andrew, what show did you choose for us to watch? Uh, well, again, there's a big Finnish connection here, but it's uh, it, it's a, it, it's one of the top series um, always for me and always has been. That's Survivors, uh, written by Terry Nation, uh, initially by Terry Nation in the uh, in 1975. It ran for three series. Um, uh, and tells a story of uh, a worldwide pandemic the, which uh, appears to have been started by a, uh, a vial being dropped uh, in, a, in a laboratory out, out in um, uh, possibly China. Uh, but the, the reasons for the pandemic are irrelevant. The main thing of survivors is more than 99% of the population have been wiped out and they're ordinary people having to cope with that and survive. They're the survivors uh, and how they go about surviving and what happens to people when they're in that position and do they have the skills to survive. Uh, and it's about how people break down, how people stand up uh, and cope with it. And I think it's a lovely concept. And I think so. if you watch the TV series or if you listen to the audio series at Big Finish, you, you can't help but think, how would I be in that situation? And it's fabulous, fabulous TV, fabulous TV. Yeah, I, I saw this two or three years ago, mm. um, and I loved it. I and the you know what got me into it was that there's a, a ton of Doctor Who connections here. Terry Nation, Terence Dudley, Patrick Troughton's in one episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, P- Roberts directed yes. a lot of uh-huh. them, and and uh, lots of people that have appeared in Doctor Who were in it. Uh, here yeah. and there mm. that's how i got into it but then when i started watching i was like wow this is really fascinating what what would i do in this situation you know maybe mm. i should brush up on my skills <laughs> and and especially today as popular as the walking dead is i mean there's no zombies in it but mm. it's very similar to like what would you do if you had to start over well it's funny i mean the walking dead i've not watched the walking dead but i had i, mean, I think it's been the last couple of weeks I had a comment. Someone said, it, "You know, it's 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 a zombie story, but but it's it's more about post. It's a post-apocalypse and how would you deal with it?" And it made me think of survivors when I heard that remark. That um, you could almost forget is zombies. It is the the appeal of the series is how do people cope? You know, when all the trappings of modern life have gone. Um, and there's a scene early on in the very first episode, actually, where. Um, 
the character Abby Grant, played by Carolyn Seymour, is she's looking for her son, and she goes to his school, but he's gone, but she's speaking to a teacher who is deaf, and he's a hearing aid, and he's talking about, you know, when the batteries run down, he won't be able to make new batteries, mm-hmm. uh, and he will be profoundly deaf, and he talks about, you know, how do you make a candle? Sim- simple things like that. You start to think, actually, there are all these things that we take for granted, that if we didn't have the trappings of modern society, how would we survive? Um, and uh, Survivor just runs with that. Uh, and it really is a world where you can expect that, you know, if, you, if, if you're a survivor, pretty much everyone you know will be dead. It takes a few episodes until we get a couple of characters. So it's a businessman and his secretary, two people who've actually known each other um, previously, are joint survivors. Uh, the thrust of, particularly at the start of Survivors, is everyone you know will have died. You have to expect the vast majority of characters, everyone that they know has died. Um, there are very, very few people who've got immunity to um, to what, what becomes known as the death. Uh, and the, char- the characters are ordinary people. You know, go, you know, Abby Grant is a housewife. Um, Jenny is a uh, played by Lucy Fleming is is, uh, yeah, is I, th- I think a secretary. Uh, e. McCulloch uh, plays Greg Preston, who's an engineer. It turns up in episode two, and he, he flies in. He's been out in Holland doing some work where the same thing has happened. So we get from him the idea that this isn't just the UK. This is a worldwide thing. Um, and they are ordinary people, and they're not trying to find out. You know how this happened, or solve it, or whatever. They're ju- they're just thinking, this is right. This is the position we're in. What do we do? How do we how do we go forward from here? Abby Abby becomes, you know, Abby Abby's driven by trying to find Peter, her son. Um, uh, that's her motivation, and that and that drives the series for a few episodes. But then they settle down. They um they they form a community, and Abby sort of think, well, maybe. I need to do that. I need to be part of a community. But then she goes off, goes off on her travels looking for Peter, which is something that's picked up by Big Finish again. Uh, there's, in, in between times, there's such powerful, powerful drama in there. So I hadn't seen this show before this week. Hmm. Um, and mainly, even though the the subject matter always sounded fascinating to me, the fact that Terry Nation's name was attached to it sort of gave me pause. Um, yeah. Because I, while I like several of his Doctor Who stories, I find them to be fairly repetitive. And I wasn't expecting much from a mid-70s drama. Mm. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what to expect, and I did not have a, a, a positive preconception going in. And that first episode hooked me. I, I yeah. couldn't have told you how 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 much that was going to grab me and engage mm. me. There were directorial choices and writing choices that I don't get surprised by television often. And if you mm. want to impress me, you got to surprise me. Yeah. And the direction that that first story took when there's a, so many misleads where you think that one thing is going to happen, 
especially where who lives and who dies. You know, yes. they, you yeah. you focus yeah. on a character and you you follow them and you follow them and follow them and suddenly they're not alive anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I I don't want to spoil too much by naming mm. names, but it is so well done and it's so dire and it mm. focuses on subject matter that until recently I think television would have shied away from. It went to places that I was not expecting 70s television to go. Um, I watched the first three episodes. Uh, I watched one other episode that you had recommended. Uh, mm. And I have every intention. Law and Order. Yeah. Law and Order. And yeah. I definitely, oh, I want to talk about that episode. Yeah. <laughs> I curse you for even introducing me to this series. But <laughs> I have every intention after we're done completing mm. that series. I, I, I absolutely this is how I have gone to bed for the last four days is watching a full episode. Not has not given me the greatest dreams. Um, but yeah, Andrew, yeah. like you had said, it does make you think, what would you do in that situation? And I love yeah. thinking that kind of stuff. And unlike I, say, I, Doctor and the big Who, which is... do the same, do the same thing, I think. And, um, but again, you talk about characters. I mean, I mean, I've mentioned Abby Grant. We know Abby Grant is, uh, one of, one of the key characters. She's in the opening scenes of the opening episode, and she is basically a pampered housewife. She's very much a, um, uh, you know, kind of upper or upper middle class housewife. We see her first. Of, she's in a, her own personal tennis court, practicing her tennis with a with a tennis machine. The and, most malevolent uh, tennis machine I have ever seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something about that machine and its repetitive thumping that you think something horrible is going to happen with it. <laughs> <coughs> and then she goes in the house and she gets her and she got her cleaner and she gives her cleaner some time off because I think her husband's not well or whatever but again you look at it and you think oh she's toast <laughs> you know if you know people say that she's going to be toast you know but no um, uh, and in fact there's a scene in the opening episode where she goes to her son's school and she's in uh, uh, the um, the room uh, well, the, the dormitory uh, and um and in fact, I, I revisited that in series five of the box set. I have Abby going back there. She said, well, maybe Peter will have returned since, you know. Um, and I, so, you know so, such powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. Very compelling. Um, and that's the thing. Um, I, 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 again, I don't want to give too much away, but there's, there's, there's a character, um, Anne, who turns up and I and I don't know if it's in this. I don't know if you'll have seen this. I don't know which. I, I can't remember. It's the second episode or the third. Uh, Anne is this character who's with someone in a quarry. Uh, oh. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, no, no. I, I've I've seen yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the second episode. Anne Spencer is a character, and um, and she does something that is just horrific. It, it is it is one of the you are shouting at you. Cow, you utter oh and you think that'll you know but it may be that that will come back to haunt her <laughs> at some point in the future you don't know but again but there's that mixture of people being utterly heroic and others just totally looking out for themselves and um and it's interesting you know in mccullough's character greg greg preston is a really interesting character because uh, something I picked up on, I incorporated this in my scripts as well, and I've got to say, Survivors is my favourite writing gig on Big Finish. I absolutely love it every time I do it. 
um, uh, is you, you probably think he's got. You probably describe him. Most people describe him as you know gung ho. You know um, hard, hard, and maybe quick to c- confront people. But actually, and, and this is great, great writing. He is. He he does the right thing. He is so sensible when. Uh, when when they find a supermarket with a body hanging, and then they're challenged by the Terry Nation, what's regarded as a Terry Nation trope of survivors, uh, three guys in a Land Rover with shotguns. He's the one who says, "Listen, let's let's not cause a confrontation. Let's just get in the car and drive and leave. let's do as these people say. Get in the car and leave." And he does he does that and the equivalent of that so many times in the series, and it's it's very. It's very honest writing. It's very be- it's, it's very believable in terms of how his character behaves. He's not just the guy looking for the fight, the confrontation. St- you know, because and and again, it's so true to life as well. The last thing you want to do in real life, if you've got three guys with shotguns and a Land Rover pointing them at you, is to stand up to them and take them on in a fight because you're going to lose. Um, and another lesser series would have had Greg doing that mm-hmm. um, because you can't have your main character they would say having a gun pointed at him and just kowtowing and say oh sorry right, okay we'll go but they do that and that is that is, it's little moments like that that make particularly that first series of Survivors so good I will say in the second series there are some really standout episodes The Lights of London a two part so it's very very good there are elements of it where they just become, a, I th- for my taste, a little too domesticated. Terry Nation is no longer involved in episode two. Terence Dudley is driving the show as a producer and the creative force behind it, really. And that, but then in series three, it comes back again. There's some lovely, lovely, lovely stuff. There's an episode called Mad Dog in episode three. Wonderful stuff. And uh, Ian McCulloch has written some of this as well. Um... I it's a series I commend very very highly. Some of the ones that stood out were the first one, of course. Uh, the one I think it's in series two where um, mm. Patrick Troughton is in there for the first mm-hmm. few minutes. That's a good one. Yeah. And and one that you asked us to watch again really stood out to me was uh, Law and Order. Oh, it's it's exceptional. It's exceptional, and it's so. It's funny when I was when I was writing for um, the first audio series of Survivors. Again, we were on a quite a tight. Um, uh, the, the 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 timeline for it's quite constricted, uh, so I had to get back up to speed with the series very quickly. And uh, I remember, and I've I've got this wonderful book. The it's called The End of the World. It's the unofficial and unauthorized guide to the original Survivors. I've got it in front of me now, written by Rich Cross and Andy Priestner, uh, with a foreword by Pennant Roberts, director. Uh, and it's it's a wonderful guide. But what I was doing was uh, I was I was watching all of the episodes, particularly the first series. Um, but I was having to because I was storylining, I was having to look at all the uh, synopses of the episodes in this book. Uh, so I kind of spoiled myself for Law and Order because I, I I did watch it on first broadcast. Uh, and I loved it. And Survivors is just imprinted. That's why you know I I brought it as something that I wanted to talk about today. I watched it on first broadcast and loved it. Uh, Law and Order. I didn't remember the the intricacies of it, but I remember you know 
it's it's um it's funny it's it's one of the things there is a murder and at the start of the episode you know who has committed the murder and it's one of those things where i thought uh you, you kind of think well have you missed a trick there um you know you kind of you know what you know you're taking the mystery out of it but absolutely absolutely that is why the episode works Mm-hmm. You know who the killer is, and then when there are developments from that, and and this is about again a community. There is no law and order. There is no police force. There are no courts. It's just about this small community of twenty or thirty people. And how do they deal with a murder that happened? It, it's it's fantastic. Actually, you could watch no other episode of Survivors, but if you just know roughly, right? This is post-apocalyptic. You got to decide. Just watch that episode and love it. Um, and then it just engages you so much. And again, because I'm not going to be spoiled, but there are just moments later because you know who the murderer is. Um, you, <laughs> you get it's powerful. Moment, you're kind of, it's powerful. Yeah, you're, you're kind of shouting at the screen. Um, absolutely. And it, in a way that if you didn't know who the if you didn't know who the killer was at the start, it would not be the same episode. No. You you have to know, and that is such a clever and intelligent and and genius way to, to take the story. I have not been grabbed by a television episode that well. Yeah, written by Clive Exton, we should we should say. Yeah. Renting is what's it? MK Jeeves. MK Jeeves, yeah. MK Jeeves, yeah, yeah. I haven't got the. I get we were talking about this before we recorded. I haven't quite got to the bottom of why that is, but it might well mention it in the. Uh, in the uh, in the guidebook, why that is, but it is one of the best hours of uh, BBC television from the seventies. And if anybody wants to see it, it's it's on YouTube. That's where I found it. I I rented the DVDs the first time, but this time I found it on YouTube. So I was very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, sadly, it's it's portioned in nine minute segments, so there is a yeah. bit of a uh, you get really involved with it, and then it stops before it moves on to the next one, but. You know, if you have no other option, um, it is available, and that is that is a I, good I, thing. I wouldn't usually endorse it, but if that is the only way you can access it, then fair. I, 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 having said that, the whole series uh, is available at. Uh, I don't know what it's like in the in the US, but certainly the UK, it's certainly very reasonably priced uh, on the usual outlets. Uh, Sadly, a lot of the UK shows. Um, mm. It made it once, and now the discs are out of print. So yeah. you know you have a situation which you have with several of the Doctor Who episodes, where if you would like to get a copy that is for our region yeah. on DVD, you have to expect to pay anywhere between fifty and one hundred and fifty dollars, sometimes oh, I more. That, yeah, I, I saw that recently with the two Doctors. Yes, it seems to be a particular example. I think Blake Seven is uh, the same, isn't it? Can't pick it up. Yeah, can't. You cannot get it. <clears throat> uh, let's say legally in yeah, the United yeah. States on on DVD. Ah, so much good stuff. Star At least not Cops new, anyway. One you should, yeah, yeah. Well, Andrew, um, before we go, I wanted to mention one more thing. Uh, something mm. you have coming up in January of next year. Um, as as we were preparing for this episode, one of the questions I had for you was, "Will you ever write for the Fourth Doctor again?" And lo and behold, about a week ago, Big Finish announced that you'll be writing a story called "The Sons of Caldor." To open yep. up the next series of the Fourth Doctor audios, that's another one. I'm glad it's out there. Yeah, I think it's a sequel to Robots of Death, or is it a it prequel? Is. Or is... 
It is, yeah. Uh, and it was one of the happiest recording experiences I've had, actually. Uh, I love who they got to play the robots. They could not have had better people playing the robots. Uh, it's not the original cast, but it's mm-hmm. a, it's uh, two or three guys who really know what they're doing. This stuff, and that's all I can say right now. But that's actually not the first release where I'll be writing for the Fourth Doctor because in July, uh, in the Fourth Doctor Adventures, there's a story called um, The Mavell in Grave. Oh, excellent. Uh, coming out, and it's uh, Tom and Lala. Uh, uh, and uh, that's that's another one where, again, um, I, you know, I was asked to do it with the Mavellans, and like the Vord, you know, you sort of watch the TV episode with a notebook and you think, okay, there's some things to address here, some contradictions here. Um, uh, what I, that was, again, that was great, great fun to do. God, we, we, we recorded that the week after I retired from the police in September 2014. I know it's like July 2017 that it's coming out. Um, but, uh, it was, uh, that was a particular pleasure. It was my first time meeting Tom again, actually, um, since 1980. Uh, and he was fantastic. Uh, and I've... Um, so, yeah, I've done so I've done the Mavell Grave, the Sons of Caldor. Uh, and I might have done one or two other things for Tom as well that will be coming out in the fullness of time. And... Um, uh, it's something. It's funny. I, I, I'll be honest with you. The Mavellan Grave. I was driving down the, to the recording studio, and for the first time, I wasn't really looking forward to it because Tom hadn't been the best of company back in 1980. And then I walked in. I've told the story a couple of times now. But I, I walked in the green room. I was the last one to get there, and Tom sat in his usual chair just by the door. And I walked in. I said, "Oh, shook his hand. I'm Andrew." I said, "I." I'm the writer. I said, uh, you won't remember this, but I, I wrote one of your TV stories back in 1980. And straight away I said, oh, I was terribly grumpy back then. And I said, yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then he was brilliant. You know, I, I, I wasn't looking forward to it. I, I, um, uh, I, you know, but I, then I had what to that point was my happiest day in the studio. It was great, and he and he really knew the script, and you know, he said, "Oh, I'm looking forward to my scene with this character." But, but I thought, "Blimey, that's that's like that's like a, you know, we're just started, and that's like a scene, well into the story." He he, you know, he really he really knows this, and he's engaged with it, and uh, whatever. Uh, and he's also very very funny, uh, and he still swears as much as he does, and it's a shame that we can't put this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> because you know you'll, you'll shove a sweary into a scene from time to time, and uh, and it it just keeps the mood nice and buoyant. But he's he's so good, um, and he, he and again he's he's such a wonderful doctor, a wonderful wonderful doctor. And it's it's uh, uh, it's it, it, it's lovely to again um, uh, be writing for him. You know, and hearing Tom Baker speak those lines, and and to have him and Lala again uh, in a story, uh, it's great. Yeah, the Sons of Caldor. Um, that was a, oh, you know, I, I particularly enjoyed doing that. There, there were some particular issues with writing it. The, the, 
the particular complication. And, and when I was doing rewrites, there was a particular domino effect because of certain things I'd introduced. Uh, I can't say too much, but I just change a. I've never had a, a re. There were there weren't that many notes for the second draft, but I just found that a little thing. I've never had a script where just changing a little thing here and there just had such an effect, right? A ripple right across the script. Um, uh, for consistency with how the characters and robots behave to certain things that are happening in the story. Um, but I'm I'm really, really, really pleased with that one. Uh, and I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I look forward to, um, I look forward to coming out, I look forward to hearing it myself. Well, so do we. So do we, <laughs> absolutely. Andrew Smith, thank you so much thank you. for thank you. joining us today. Thank you for spending this this time with us. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for joining us at Who & Company. I'd like to give a special shout-out to uh, Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. You can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.lipson.com. You can also contact us on Twitter, at Who & Company, or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. We'll see you next month at Who & Company. Come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. You can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.lipson.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at Who and Company or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. A special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. See you next month. <laughs>